Andrea, given all that you know now about metabolism, when you see when you see kids out and about in the community, what goes through your mind in terms of what those kids are going through if they have excess body weight? I just, you know, I sort of look at kids and I'm like, oh my God, I hope they don't have to go through what I went through. I hope that they go to a great doctor who understands that there's something out there that can help them. And I hope that they get help way earlier than when I got help. But um, I hope that they don't have to go through the emotional and the physical trauma that I went through um, and that they can figure it out earlier and that they don't have to be, you know, just eating carrots and celery in their lunchbox and feeling guilty about not having what they want to eat and not enjoying their life for what they can enjoy. This is Fat Science, a podcast dedicated to the science of why we get fat. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional medical advice. I'm Dr. Emily Cooper. I've been treating patients with metabolic issues for over 25 years. I'm on a mission to raise awareness about metabolic dysfunction and why diets don't work. Hi, I'm Andrea Taylor. I've been fat, very fat, chubby, morbidly obese, and done almost every diet ever invented. They all worked until they didn't. I've known Dr. Cooper forever, but when I became her patient and we learned metabolism was the real problem, wow, everything changed, and I've never been healthier. And I'm Mark Wright. It's time for Fat Science. Wait, does this podcast make me look fat? Welcome to Fat Science. I'm Mark Wright, along with my friends Andrea Taylor and Dr. Emily Cooper. It's great to see you, too. Great to be back. Hi. Hi. So on the show this week, this is going to be really interesting, metabolic syndrome and children. And the reason that we wanted to cover this topic is that metabolic syndrome and metabolic damage can actually start when we are children, not only by the things that we do, but also the genetics that are inside us from birth. So this is going to be super interesting. Dr. Cooper, if you could just kind of set the table for us on this one, how common is metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction in children? It's becoming more and more common. And we're seeing that really over the past decade, the number's increasing. But right now, I believe obesity in children is up to 20% of kids that kind of are in the category of obesity. Um, but along with that, we're seeing high levels of, with or without the obesity factor, we're seeing high levels of triglycerides in some kids, blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol, even fatty liver markers. And so we're seeing quite a bit of it. If, but the problem is that a lot of kids don't actually have any lab work or screening for any of these conditions. Uh, refresh me, Dr. Cooper, what triglycerides are. Triglycerides are a type of fat that circulates in the bloodstream, and it's part of the normal cholesterol panel where you'll see total cholesterol, LDL, which is the, quote, bad cholesterol, HDL, which is the, quote, good, good cholesterol, um, and you'll see triglyceride levels. And elevated triglyceride levels are a big clue that that person is more prone to develop diabetes and may have metabolic syndrome and may have insulin elevations. 
And so it's a great marker for identifying problems and it's a simple blood test. Can you tell just by looking at a kid if they would have metabolic syndrome or do you have to do blood work? Well, you really can't tell from looking at someone. You would have to do an extensive workup, including blood pressure, blood work. And just like in adults, you can have metabolic syndrome at a completely normal weight. It is a higher chance that you would have metabolic syndrome with a higher weight, but people at normal weight can still have metabolic syndrome. And in adults, 25% of adults of normal weight have metabolic syndrome. So it is pretty significant, but we don't want to be just focused on body weight with kids. Although that is a lot of times the presenting issue that parents come to the doctor with is why is my kid, why do they have an elevated weight? Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, Dr. Cooper, for parents out there, what would some of the signs be that um, you know would cause me to say, hey, maybe we should go seek some help on this stuff? Well, one of the most common kind of more obvious signs is an imbalance of body weight versus body height proportionality. So with kids, obviously they're a moving target. They're always growing. And so before a growth spurt, they'll put on some weight, which is totally normal. And then they grow a little taller. And there's some key areas and key times where this is really pronounced. So for girls, it's age nine to 14 when we have the most, you know, most productive growth spurt, basically. And in boys, it's a little bit later. So it'd be like 11 to 17. And during that period of time, what often parents will see is the weight increases and then the height doesn't seem to increase in proportion. And so they get concerned. And also um, providers often get concerned. So the first step is to step back and think, okay, is this just part of a normal growth spurt where we didn't see the height increase yet because there's a delay? Or is there really something going on here? And so that's often one of the presenting symptoms that uh, parents are concerned about. But there are other things too um, in the physical status, like decreased energy levels. So fatigue, kids who really have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning, don't really have the energy for exercise, kind of are perceived as being fairly sluggish. Um, that sometimes is a presenting um, symptom as well. But many kids are really active and have plenty of energy and they may still have metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction. I think we should also ask the question right out of the shoot here, Dr. Cooper, why is it important for us to know if a kid is predisposed to metabolic syndrome or metabolic dysfunction? Why is it key? It's really important to maintain a healthy metabolism throughout childhood because if metabolic dysfunction sets in or metabolic syndrome, it can actually impair aspects of development during key developmental periods. So for girls, for example, often when there's an underlying problem with elevated insulin levels or any of the aspects of, of metabolic syndrome, girls will often um, begin puberty too fast at too young of an age. It's called precocious puberty. And on the opposite side, boys will have a delay in their 
puberty development. And so that can really throw things for a loop. If during the normal periods of transitioning from pre-puberty to puberty, we're having some kind of interference in that process. So that's one of the key things that happens in childhood where we want to have a healthy metabolism to make it through those stages, but also it affects quality of life. And so if we have metabolic dysfunction as a kid, most often kids feel less energetic. There may be imbalances of blood sugar regulation that can cause problems with attention, focus, cognitive and mood issues. And, um, there can be issues also with just body image because of disproportionate weight increases that are just kind of abnormal with respect to the, the height that's um, increasing. And um, acne can even be a symptom of metabolic dysfunction in kids, and that's no fun for kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If people haven't heard your story, Andrea, I'd love for you to spend just a few moments because I think this is so important to talk about your story, um, just because it hits it hits so many markers in terms of understanding metabolic syndrome. Um, you started dieting at the age of eight, um, and just take me back to what what was the dynamic in your house? You know, did, was it your mom that came to you and said, "Hey, we gotta we gotta do something about this"? I think I think that it was sort of just an obvious thing like um you're too big <laughs> you're too chubby um let's do something let's go on a diet i mean my mother was always going on diets um you know it was the 60s it was the time of the mini skirt my mother was very fashionable i wanted to be fashionable i wanted to wear all the same clothes as all the other little girls so I did want to be on a diet. I did want to be skinny like all the other girls. So I went along with it because I thought that was the thing to do. I wanted to be like all the other girls. Um, could I be like all the other girls? Not so much. Um, but I did go on the diets. And I mean, the doctors put me on the diets. They suggested, well, she's got to, you know, just eat this, no potatoes, no rice, no this, no bread. Um, so it was when Weight Watchers first started. So we did that. And I mean, my whole family did tend to be heavier than thin, but not really like me, maybe my dad a little bit more, but my brother was an athlete. Um, so at that time he was a skinny kid and, uh, you know, I did sports. I was a dancer. Um, I think we were talking about before that I did ballet and, but I was always sort of the chubby kid. So as I got older, it got worse and worse and worse. Um, it didn't feel good, you know, to be the chubby kid in the class, to be the one. And I did love, like I said, I did love fashion. I did want to wear all the latest clothes. So I wanted to fit in. I wanted to do it. It wasn't like somebody was... Um, it wasn't as if somebody was forcing me to do something I didn't want to do. I wanted to be like everybody else. Mm. So I felt like the diets were the end means to that goal. So Dr. Cooper, I'd love for you to weigh in here because there were two things going on. Andrea was genetically predisposed 
to metabolic dysfunction and the dieting then kind of exacerbated the whole thing, didn't it? Yes. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is what happens in childhood does set the stage for our adulthood and genetics are genetics. So if you're born with genetics that put you in that category of being weight prone and resistant to like what's considered normal weight in our population, then that is something that's just really ingrained in your genes. But then the methods that we do to try to manage that through restricting calorie intake, increasing exercise can lead to long-term metabolic damage beyond just that simple original genetic problem. And so it's good to think about how these things in childhood affect us as adults and why it's so important to catch it in childhood really is because it can affect that child's future health, not just their weight, but, you know, their cardiovascular risk, diabetes risk, stroke risk, you know, as adults. Um, And so the beauty of treating these things in childhood is that it's so rewarding because you can see it with the families that we see, generational families, the earlier you get on this and start treating the underlying problem, the less likely it is that they're going to go on and suffer those same consequences that their parents did, um, you know, because of not being diagnosed at an early enough age and not intervening at early enough age and not breaking the diet cycle, you know, that people do throughout their life. And so by addressing it early and improving the underlying metabolic function, discouraging diets, you can actually change the trajectory for these kids so that as adults, they're not as affected at all as what, you know, how they would have been had they not addressed it. We did genetic testing for, um, uh, I was trying to get into a a trial for a new uh, medication that was coming up. So I did have genetic markers that were for obesity. And then also when I first started with Dr. Cooper, um, I mentioned to my mother something about gestational diabetes was one of the problems. And I mean, I was over 50 at that point. And my mother goes, oh, I had that. Mm-hmm. So I found out that I had that, which is one of the things that is also a contributor. It is. to Yes. Um, maternal gestational diabetes is definitely a risk factor for both the mom and the offspring for the future. So for future risk of diabetes and obesity and um, other things would be if a child's born at small for gestational age or large for gestational age. So that means if you're born at term, but you're have a low body weight, that could be a risk factor for future obesity. Um, and then if you're born larger than average uh, size, also that could be a risk factor. It's not so much the weight that's the risk factor, it's what it represents. And so being small for gestational age can be because of some type of dysfunction, uh, maternal metabolism dysfunction that was impairing the, you know, fuel utilization in the offspring. 
Um, it could also be exposure to certain things like smoking and other things in pregnancy. Um, but being large for just a gestational age could be a sign that that mother had gestational diabetes that was maybe even undiagnosed because, yeah. So Dr. Cooper, what's happening with gestational diabetes? What's happening in the, in the mom? Yeah, that's a great question. And we want to keep in mind gestational diabetes is underdiagnosed. So the estimate is that two thirds of the cases are missed. So wow. it is severely really? underdiagnosed. But what's happening is the mother's glucose levels are elevated. So when that happens, the mother's insulin levels elevate because we discussed in prior episodes that insulin, one of its main roles is to help that glucose get to the body tissues to be used as a fuel. And so whenever the glucose levels goes up, the insulin level goes up to push that glucose into the tissues so that we don't run very high glucose levels in our bloodstream and that our body can use that glucose as fuel. But in um, pregnancy, the developing fetus does not, um, you know, does not see the mother's insulin. It only sees the glucose. So then their insulin, the baby's insulin will start to rise to try to adapt to the mother's glucose. So that starts a dysfunction because their insulin is now rising above a normal, what would be required for normal glucose environment. So often at the time of birth, the um, baby's glucose ends up dropping into low levels called hypoglycemia because their pancreas is pumping out an extra amount of insulin because of the environment they were used to while they were, you know, during the pregnancy, uh, while they were adapting to the mother's high glucose levels. So um, this kind of starts the dysfunction with the offspring where they're born with a body that has tried to adapt to a high glucose environment when their body doesn't have a high glucose. So hopefully that makes sense. So for moms, <laughs> yeah. So for moms listening, if, if they've had gestational diabetes and their kid is struggling with some of these issues that they, they really need to put two and two together and say, oh, wow, maybe that's what's going on in my kid, right? Totally. Yes. Um, and even yeah. if they don't know if they had gestational diabetes, certain clues could be um, problems with um, jaundice in their offspring. That can be one of the clues large for gestational age is another clue. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so if they, and, and if you have family history of diabetes, you're at more risk of having gestational diabetes as well. I want to back up though, Dr. Cooper, to what you said about restricting calories in kids who are carrying too much weight. If there's one takeaway to this entire episode, tell us why putting kids on a diet is such a damaging thing to do. It, it is, and it's the natural instinct of parents and even healthcare providers. If you see a kid who, you know, their weight is elevating out of proportion, what seems to be out of proportion to their height as they're going through that major growth spurt or other growth spurts during childhood, the inclination is, well, stop them from eating so much, increase their activity. That's just so common. Um, but the true issue is that if you do that, you're taking a person who may already have a metabolism imbalance and 
putting uh, an increase, an amplification to that imbalance by triggering famine signals to elevate in the body that are powerful weight gaining chemicals. <laughs> and so then this poor child is now suffering from what we call diet damage and um, feeling starving and not fueled for their exercise, which can lead to injury and poor perform athletic performance. And so it's really not the direction to go. The, the better direction would be find out what's causing it. Let's find out and see. Now, there may be opportunities to, you know, improve the quality of the diet um, or get a little more physical activity if it's below a normal amount. You know, there are kids that maybe could benefit from improving their diet quality, getting more activity. That's not necessarily going to solve a true metabolic issue, though. Hmm. And there's kids that are like major athletes that are eating, you know, a very high quality diet and they are suffering from this disproportionate weight gain. And they're also being told to just exercise more and cut out their calories and eat less. And obviously they feel unheard. They, they know that can't be right. And when I talk to kids, I talk to a lot of kids they completely know that's not right. <laughs> you know, they're, they're very excited when I tell them, no, yeah, that's not right. Let's not put you on any kind of diet. They, they always smirk and <laughs> they always are like, see, I told you it's not the right. <laughs> I, knew. <laughs> yeah. I knew it. You stupid yes. adults. <laughs> Andrea, you said that you were a dancer and, and you told me the story that your, your dance teacher you were quite a good dancer at about 11 or 12 yeah. years old and your teacher sat you down and and what, she what made, did she tell you she made me make a choice about whether i wanted to continue being a ballerina she said you know you're a really great dancer you're a really great ballerina but at 11 you really need to make a choice whether you want to continue being a ballerina like for real and if you want to uh continue then you have to be, you have to be a thin ballerina, and you have to make that choice. And it would mean that I couldn't continue to play softball and do some other sports, and I couldn't really do theater. I had to concentrate on ballet like five days a week or whatever, and be skinny, because ballerinas were skinny. So I would, ha and my mother was there, and I would have to make that choice. And I was. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how I would have to starve, which I knew the other girls who were in my class were not eating. And I thought, I just, I can't do this. I like, I like lasagna. I like Chinese food. <laughs> and this is not happening. I yeah. can't do that. And, and it's so I important was to really... say, you, you were not overeating. I mean, you've told us no. time and time again, you were no. just eating a normal amount of food, but... I was but eating a normal amount of food. Was storing it, yeah. And I just wasn't, that wasn't going to be my lifestyle. Yeah. And as much as I thought I kind of wanted that, I thought it was glamorous, I thought it was beautiful, but that wasn't going to be my choice. And so I just stopped. So Dr. Cooper, this is such a great example of why fueling sports activities is so important. Um, I think I told you before we started recording, a friend of mine from high school wrestled at the 101 uh, pound level 
And he was constantly depriving himself of calories and jogging and spitting and just trying to make weight over and over. And when you wrestle for four years in, in high school like that, um, and today he's, he's carrying a, a ton of weight when I, when I've seen pictures, you know, on Facebook, but talk to that parent about just how critical fueling activity is because orange wedges ain't going to cut no. <laughs> when you've got kids running for 90 minutes, right? Yes, exactly. And just listening to Andrea's story, can you imagine an 11 year old girl who's in the middle of the most important growth spurt of her life is being told to go on some extreme diet to lose weight while exercising. <laughs> so that's oh. really a disconnect between our, you know, uh, you know, luckily there are some coaches today who are aware that that's not good for our body. And there is a little bit more body acceptance now, but it's still really, really rampant in the athletic world to, you know, give kids that type of advice if their weight's elevated and they're athletic to just go on these diets. And then there's certain sports, like you're mentioning, the wrestling um, is one of the sports, the dancing, you know, where there's a real aesthetic body focus and um, the need to meet these like really ridiculous weight requirements. And, and it's happening to these kids while they're in these developmental stages too. And if they're lucky enough to not have the genetics for obesity, for example, or diabetes, then maybe they could squeak through it and not suffer as adults. But if they have that genetics, that is going to be about the very worst thing that can happen because it amplifies the underlying dysfunction so much when you go into that food deficit situation, especially as a child. And so I can't tell you the number of adults I see that in our patients, we track all the progress and we look at it all um, statistically. And the group that is the most resistant are those adults who were competitive athletes as children. They're most resistant to weight balancing efforts um, and metabolism balancing efforts because they often as kids were working out for like four hours a day, dancing or gymnastics or skate ice skating, um, different kinds of sports that are really demanding and they were not fueling it. And some of them were purposely not fueling it in order to make these weights. So it's just like your friend, it's really hard in that group to restore what we call like metabolic trust in the body that you're not going to starve because as a kid, you set that stage as you're, you know, when you were in the most vulnerable developmental period, not fueling the body. And that really put the body into some level of shock. I know there's a lot of controversy about like all the new drugs that we have, like Ozempic and um, some of those drugs with kids. But how early would you ever start a drug like that with kids? Well, um, a drug like the, that category of drugs, there are two medications in that category, what are called the GLP-1 my medics. Yeah. There are two that are FDA indicated and approved for kids 12 years old and up. So you actually can start them age 12 and up. And um, so, but there are other medications and things that we do use in kids um, that are dealing with metabolic dysfunction, depending on what is really going on. So you do have some other choices as well. And um, the main thing is 
I have seen some kids as young as two years old where you don't necessarily start them on medications, but you're monitoring things right. and you may be able to steer their care away, their general medical care away from things that can further aggravate the, their condition. So for example, in kids, a lot of mood medications can be problematic. Mm. Like ADD meds? ADD meds as well. Yes. Depression, anxiety, ADD meds, oh. all of those can have some metabolic consequences and trigger more dysfunction. Um, birth control that's given to young girls just because they don't have their period. It's like, well, don't you want to find out why? Let's not put them on the birth control because that can trigger more metabolic dysfunction. Um, and then steroids, which we see a lot for poor kids who have asthma or have, um, you know, other allergy related things where they need to take courses of steroids, um, such as prednisone or cortisone, things like that. And so you can do a lot to steer families in a direction of metabolic health, even if kids are too young to participate in pharmacology treatments. And then you just kind of have to be patient until you get to a point of development where it is safer to introduce maybe, um, some useful pharmacology to help rebalance things as, especially as they're going through that major growth spurt. So Dr. Cooper, what's, what's the big takeaway from this episode in terms of metabolic health and our children? I think the, the big answer is not to put kids on diets and just try to manipulate their weight by cutting out food groups and dieting and increasing exercise. That's just not going to lead to anything beneficial. The, you know, it's nothing wrong again with clean, with making the diet healthier and improving the quality of a diet for all of us, but it just doesn't have the power to reverse metabolic dysfunction. Um, and in fact, if you're creating a deficit, you can trigger more metabolic dysfunction and put that kid at risk for even worse issues than what they started with. So getting to the underlying problem is key. So asking for lab work, checking really is the blood pressure normal? How are the triglyceride levels? Some other signs of metabolic dysfunction in kids can be abnormal stretch mark development or something called acanthosis nigricans, which is a roughening of the skin in certain key areas like behind the neck or the elbows, knuckles, knees. Um, and abnormal facial hair growth can be a sign of abnormal levels of insulin in girls. And so there's, there's a lot to look at um, and not panicking, I think is important if the, if you're feeling like your child's weight is getting higher as they're growing, because a lot of that's normal, you know, it's going to get higher before they grow taller. So some of it is completely normal. There's no need for panic. Um, and I think just finding the answers is, is the key. I love the fact that you two have been friends since childhood. And I want to set a scenario that I'd like you to consider for a sec. What if eight-year-old Andrea and her mom had a Dr. Cooper in their lives and oh, they, were, they think... were able to walk into that office and say, hey, my daughter's struggling with her weight. Can you help us? I mean, th think about if that, think about how, Andrea, that could have changed your life and the fact that you wouldn't have had to go on 30 diets and you could have done about... I'm not saying this because I want to make you feel regret. What I love is that you're sharing your story today 
two childhood friends are, are trying to just share this knowledge with all of you listening, that there's, well, there is hope and there's power in that story. I think it would have made a world of difference. Uh, I, I think that it would have changed everything in terms of like how, how I went forward, how as even as a family, how we went forward, because mm. I think that it would have changed the family's attitude toward everything. Um, cause I, you know, a lot of times if I was on a diet or my mother was on a diet, you know, she cooked for everybody. The whole family went on the diet. So as my father used to say, so we all have to suffer. <laughs> um, and the answer would be yes. Um, but I think that it definitely would have changed everything because I think that the guilt that you feel when you have to go through everything, um, I, the freedom that I felt after I started going to Dr. Cooper about like, oh, so I can just sort of relax about it for a while. Um, that has been what's changed everything. Like I don't have to worry I don't have to obsess as much. That is a huge, huge issue. And especially because I am obsessed about food, not necessarily the eating of it, but like I love food and oh, what yeah. it means and cooking it and finding out about it and all of that. Um, and, and I guess the eating of it too. Well, join the but, club. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, not the overeating of it right. and not the, oh my God, is that going to make me fat? Is that too much? Is that too little? What's going to happen? I don't worry about that anymore. And I think for 50 years, I did worry about that. And I worried about it probably 24 hours a day. And now I don't worry about it. You know, and it's hard enough just being a kid. It is. Isn't it? Oh, yeah. And not to have to deal with this stuff. So I just, uh, I'm so grateful for both of you because I, I really believe that sharing this information is going to change lives. And uh, just thank you so much, Dr. Cooper and uh, Andrea. You two are just amazing. And uh, it's just, it feels so good to share this information because I know it's going to help somebody listening out there and a kid whose life is going to be different because of this. I hope so. so. Oh, I hope so. so. Yeah. Another thing that we, that we often don't think about is how much sleep kids need. And sleep deficits are shown to really heighten risk for metabolic dysfunction. And kids do need a lot more sleep than adults. And depending on their age, it may be 10 or 11 hours, or it might be 9 or 10 hours. If they're athletic, they always usually need more. So that's a key area to, to watch for is adequate sleep. All right. So there you have it. Kids and metabolism. It's a thing. And there are solutions. Dr. Emily Cooper, Andrea Taylor, Thanks so much. This has been another edition of Fat Science. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Fat Science with Dr. Emily Cooper, a Work P2P production. New episodes drop every Monday. If you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This production is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace professional medical advice. Join us next week for another episode dedicated to the science of why we get fat. No diets, no agendas, just science that makes you feel better.